Welcome back. I hope everyone, if you could uh, uh, just turn your video on to let us know whether you're here or not, at least for a few moments. Yeah, if you're comfortable having your video on um, as someone who's speaking, I have, you have a, I really love to see everyone. Uh, makes it uh, for me more more interactive. So if you're comfortable, some people may have bandwidth issues, and that's then of course better to uh, take care of that. Are we ready to go, friends? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, I'm starting the uh, record for the Dharma talk. And uh, anytime you're ready, Donald. Okay. Well, it's good to it's good to be with everyone, um, particularly those who have been a long time with Benicia Sangha, and uh, I remember coming out uh, typically, I don't know, two or three times a month for several years, uh, around what, 2005, 2006, 2007. Uh, and it was uh, very meaningful to uh, be with uh, Benicia Sangha in, in a really regular basis. And then, uh, you know, continuing on uh, less frequently since then. So it's... Um, uh, the community has a place in my heart. And I wanted to talk this evening, I imagine it's evening for most people. Uh, I want to talk this evening on the nature of equanimity and how we cultivate equanimity in our practice. And I'm doing so in significant part uh, because today is actually the hundredth anniversary of my father's birth. My father was named Simon Rothberg. He's not alive. And um, I thought I would also just uh, show a few pictures, but I, I, thought of him because I think he manifested equanimity in a number of different ways. And earlier today, we had a, a family gathering where we shared memories of him, uh, most, of the, most of them positive, and with my, you know, with my family. And so I wanted to just at the beginning share, because I think he manifested equanimity in certain ways, equanimity we could talk about as a quality of balance or non-reactivity in relationship to what comes up and particularly is tested, as it were, when they're difficult experiences. And I'll, I'll show some images of my father uh, just, for, just for a few minutes. Let's see. Okay. So here's my father in 1945. He's uh, 24 years old. And you wouldn't necessarily know it, but he, this is shortly after 
six years in the military. He enlisted at age 18 in 1939 because he was unable, he wanted to go to West Point, but he couldn't go to West Point because uh, they had quotas against people of Jewish background. So he couldn't go to West Point and he joined the military shortly after he was 18, uh, which was just a few months before World War II started. So he was in for six years and he, many of his uh, dear friends, uh, died in the war. He he had a lot. I think we would say now that he had a, a certain amount of uh, trauma. And of course, they didn't know how to work with that really in those days very much. And um, he nonetheless went to school, but he also had, uh, he graduated from college. He went to college on the GI Bill. He wanted to go to medical school, but again, there were quotas against Jewish people, and he couldn't go to medical school. And so he, he had a certain amount of balance. This is, uh, this is me with him. And here's him with my mother. Many of you, I think many of you met, uh, met Simon. A few of you did. I mean, Sarah, did you meet Simon at one point? I, be I believe so. And I met your mother several times, which was wonderful. Yeah. And so he was, um, he became a scientist and at one point did experiments for the government, which probably led to him being blind when he was still in his 40s. They were unsupervised experiments. And he was blind the last 27 years of his life. He also had uh, psoriasis all over his body. And he wasn't self-conscious about going to a swimming pool or something like that. Um, when he was in his 50s, he, had, he, he was diagnosed with cancer and had uh, shortly after this and had, was given two years to live. He lived another 27 years. And there was a quality, you know, this is probably in his 60s or so. It's a quality of not complaining. This is him a little bit before, uh, mm -hmm. a year before he died. And so, wow. yeah, so I wanted, there, there was that quality of equanimity with him. And he, in fact, as he had the difficulties, there was very little complaining. Of course, there was a certain amount of, emotional suppression, you know, which kind of comes with the territory for being a, a man of his generation and a few men of other generations. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, I'm really uh, dedicating the, the talk to him because I think he manifested equanimity in many ways. So equanimity is this quality of balance of non-reactivity in relationship to what occurs. And we especially, again, notice it when difficult things occur. Uh, when, uh, you know, but it's also very relevant for when positive things occur because it's really about non-grasping and not pushing away. And it's, um, 
very, very central in the teachings of the Buddha. Some of you maybe know that there are many lists which have equanimity uh, in them. You know, we have the uh, seven factors of awakening. We have the, uh, let's see, we, we have the Brahma Vihara. We have uh, several of these lists, and it's always, it's always the last. It's always the last of these, uh, always the last of these qualities. And literally, equanimity means, um, uh, there are two words, upeka is one of the terms, which means to look over really without being caught by what we see. And there's this um, sense of not being caught, of seeing clearly. It brings in the wisdom factor, but as we'll see, it also needs to have the heart dimension in it. And then there's another word, uh, uh, tachama majitata, which means to uh, stand in the middle of everything. And again, it refers to the quality of, of balance. And so again, it's one of the seven factors of awakening, one of the, uh, one of the Brahma Vihara. Let me see where my notes went to. Uh, it's the last of the paramis and, and so forth. And uh, so very, very, very central. Um, and so I, w I was also reflecting that many of the people probably that we most revere, and I was thinking of people like uh, Dr. King or uh, Nelson Mandela being in jail for many years. Many of these persons manifest a kind of equanimity in the midst of difficulty. You know, I was thinking of I could actually have played it with uh, with Zoom, but I was thinking of the last speech that Dr. King gave in Memphis the day before he died. And he says, uh, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. And he says, I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing anyone. And so we can find that equanimity. Maybe you know people friends or teachers who have that quality of equanimity, especially manifesting with challenging experiences. So I want to talk uh, about some of the core qualities of equanimity and also how, given each of these, how we cultivate equanimity in our practice. And also what some of the typical challenges are of cultivating equanimity and the you know, some of the typical challenges are that we kind of misuse equanimity and cut ourselves off from the heart because mature equanimity reflects both deep wisdom and a kind heart. And again, very uh, the fact that it was mentioned last in all the lists of the Buddha also points to the way that 
it's um, it's a very deep quality, sometimes said to be very close to Nibbana, very close to the sacred. It's, it's sometimes said. So it's a deep quality. So I'll mention a few quality, uh, uh, yeah, a few aspects of equanimity. One of them is a kind of evenness, you know, that we can, or I should say, uh, that we can be with whatever occurs. And, you know, it's very much like the American monk Achan Sumedho says, oh, you know, sadness is like this, you know, despair, oh, it's like this. There's a kind of ability to be with what comes up with, with, with evenness. And, you know, some of the expressions of this evenness that have kind of meant a lot to me uh, come from a Japanese haiku. And uh, they seem to often involve uh, fleas. I don't know if in Japan in the uh, 17th and 18th century there were a lot of fleas, but perhaps because a lot of haiku writers mention fleas. So here's Basho you know, perhaps the most famous of the haiku writers. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. That's it. That's an equanimity haiku. He didn't call it that, but why, you know, I'll do it again. But listen, why is this equanimity? Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. What would a poem like that be if it was a non-equanimity haiku? Last night, the horse pissed near my pillow. Why did he do that? <laughs> okay, so that would be non-equanimity. So equanimity haiku is different. Here, uh, here are two more from Isa. Well, again, one of the most famous of the haiku writers. And I, I hear these as equanimity. I'm sorry it's so small but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. And a third flea equanimity haiku. He's going to mention a famous sacred mountain in Japan called Matsushima. Now you fleas, you shall see Matsushima. Off we go. So that's that's the quality of evenness, that there's some ability to be with what comes up and to be with it with balance. Balance is another quality I want to name. Again, this is the balance of being non-reactive. And in my experience, both uh, personal and, and teaching, a lot of the equanimity of balance comes from being willing to bring practice to times when we're not balanced, when we're angry, fearful, anxious, confused, totally distracted, and we try to bring practice to it. And in doing so, we learn the nature of these challenging experiences. We might also bring the equanimity to when something really positive happens and I get attached to it. Uh, and a lot of this, a lot of the equanimity 
is simply the natural fruit of practice. When we look carefully at fear, we get to know the nature of fear. And, you know, I'm thinking of like uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And we, we actually are able to be with fear without reacting to fear and rather can respond skillfully. And again, I think of the mountain climber. The mountain climber doesn't banish fear. The mountain climber has fear, but there's fear and there's it doesn't proliferate. So a lot of what equanimity is about is this non-reactivity in which even if there's something difficult, we can be skillful and it doesn't proliferate. A third quality is uh, unshakability. Don't you like that? Would you like to be unshakable? How many would like that? Okay. Yeah, equanimity brings aspects of this because again, we have balance, but there's a way that as we develop equanimity, and again, very, very natural expression of our practice as we simply notice whatever comes up, and particularly through hanging out at times with the difficult stuff. I think for me, one of the significant ways that I've really developed more equanimity is in retreats, where sometimes I've had difficult states which last almost a whole retreat. I don't know if everyone has this. I, not, I think not everyone. But I've, you know, and this was especially in the first let's say, five years of my retreat practice. But I remember I had one retreat where um, my self-image sort of fell apart and I was, you know, feeling really disoriented. Another retreat, I was um, fearful. I had fear for the better part of a week, virtually all the time. But it wasn't overly intense, so I could study it, you know, and I actually have in my, in my study, I have a little poster art piece from the Bread and Puppet Theater, which is one of the pieces they did that's in Vermont. It's, uh, it's, it's an image and the caption is, the one who set out to study fear. That's what we do. We, we look at it when it comes up. I had another retreat, which was full of anger. For, I think, for 10 days, just anger. Another retreat, um, particularly self-judgment and judgment of others. And, you know, they were not easy retreats, but something got learned. And we can do that in those large ways if something's really dominant for a period of time, or we can do it in short ways. One way to understand um, unshakability is in terms of one of the uh, core teachings, which point to one or eight different ways that we get shaken up. These are called the eight worldly winds. And some of you, probably many of you know these. These are the eight qualities. There are four sets of two. Each set has a way that we get attached and a way that we want to push away. And so the first is pleasure and pain. So the, the point's going to be, if you want to develop equanimity, study these eight. 
Really study them closely, how they manifest in your experience. Pleasure and pain. Gain and loss. Praise and blame. What's called fame and disrepute, which is kind of having people think well of you or people think uh, not well of you. And so these are ways to practice. And can we work with these skillfully so they don't hang us up? And I I like the, the teaching because it brings in also the positive qualities. Again, often we think of equanimity as about being able to be with the difficult stuff. But there's also this important aspect of equanimity that's about balance when there are really good things happening, positive things happening. Essentially, do I get attached? Do I get inflated? Do I, uh, you know, increase my self-image? What happens when the pleasant is there? Can I have equanimity about the pleasant or do I get attached to the pleasant and so forth? So it's a beautiful, powerful teaching, you know, and again, we can uh, study it. You know, one of the uh, stories which has really stayed with me in this regard came from one of my uh, one of my first mentors in uh, uh, both uh, practice and teaching uh, who's in his 80s now named Larry Rosenberg who founded the Cambridge, Massachusetts Insight Meditation Center. And he was a mentor to me when I was in a period when I was living in Boston. And Larry told me the story of when he was doing Zen practice with a, uh, a teacher named Sun Sanim. And he was given, uh, he was living in a, in a communal house of Zen practitioners in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And he was, uh, He was asked to teach a retreat which started right after Christmas. But most of the people in the house were young and they went home. And it turned out no one signed up for the retreat. And he went to his teacher and he said, I guess we cancel the retreat, huh? And his teacher said, "Uh, no, I want you to teach the retreat. (laughs) And so... Larry, he said, I want you to teach it. I want you to follow the full schedule. And I want you to give the Dharma talks. And there was no one there. Five days. The first day he felt really, really foolish. After a few days, something really sunk in about the dignity of doing what is uh, good, so to speak, without worrying about numbers. And he said that after that experience as a teacher, he never would get involved. He never felt much energy for any discussions. You know, sometimes among teachers, we might say, how was the retreat? Oh yeah, it was pretty full. We had 90 people. Okay, great. How was the retreat? Well, it was kind of the small side, 13 people. Oh yeah, kind of small, huh? You know, and So we all have our own versions of that, right? Larry said he never had much energy for that kind of discussion after that experience. There was a kind of equanimity because he had really, in those uh, five days, looked at that issue 
very, very closely. And so there's this, uh, there's this unshakability. Um, this is from the Buddha talking about his own experience when he was practicing. I would make my bed in a charnel ground with the bones of the dead for a pillow. And cowherd boys came up and spat on me. They urinated on me, threw dirt at me, and poked sticks in my ears. Yet I do not recall that I ever aroused hatred against them. Such was my abiding in equanimity. So one of my areas of practice of unshakability is going to the dentist. Seeing if I can develop non-reactivity as one of those six-inch needles comes towards my mouth. Anyone else do a form of practice with the dentist? Recommended. Anyway, um, a fourth quality of equanimity is understanding and wisdom. It brings in the wisdom dimension. And so there it's really um, understanding how things happen, understanding causes and conditions. I remember one thing which was really significant for me in developing equanimity was when I was in a workplace and I would have regular difficulties with the person who was an administrator and I thought he would all always set hurdles up for me. And, you know, I would become reactive sometimes directly, you know, more often probably just in my own mind. And then one time after the same pattern happened, I just started reflecting. I don't think I was thinking about equanimity, but I reflected on the way that we were both following our patterns. Many of you probably have done this with relationships. He was doing his thing and I was doing my thing. We both had our causes and conditions. And what was occurring was natural, right? And how many of you have done something like this, maybe with relational issues, just really seen, oh, this is, this is our pattern. This is our habit, you know, and that is a way to develop equanimity. Like, you know, one will look further. One can do that as a way of dampening down emotions or anger or something. And that's not so skillful, but the wisdom part is, you know, and so, you know, I was thinking of um, uh, Gary Snyder, who says, it's very helpful in looking at human life to have a four or 5,000 year perspective, right? You know, who are uh, Dr. Ari Ratni from Sri Lanka, who, uh, helped very much with the civil war in Sri Lanka. And he said, we have to have a 500 year plan because the causes of the civil war were 500 years in the making, you know, several hundred years of um, colonial rule, so forth, uh, conflicts between different ethnic groups and so forth. And so that, that, that's been very, very inspiring. Another quality is that equanimity, even though it brings the wisdom dimension, has a strong link to the heart. In fact, uh, 
one of the ways that equanimity is developed in addition through our mindfulness and insight practice is through the practice of the Brahma Vihara, which are the practices of developing the awakened heart, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And it's often taught that you have to do all these together. There's a danger if you practice, if you develop equanimity without developing loving kindness, compassion, and joy, because one can come up against sort of the way that equanimity maybe becomes detached from the heart. It can become, the Buddha talked about kind of the occupational hazard of equanimity is indifference. It looks like equanimity, but doesn't have the heart there, right? And, you know, there are other forms of that, like maybe like uh, resignation, being overly intellectual. Yeah, I'm really balanced, but I'm kind of a little bit aloof, right? That would be an occupational hazard of equanimity. So we always want to bring in the heart practices as a way of uh, doing balance with with uh, the wisdom factor. In fact, many of you know that the expression of the whole of the teachings often is in terms of these two qualities, wisdom and compassion. Compassion stands in for all the heart qualities. So that's that's there. Another another aspect of that is that equanimity is responsive and active. It's not just standing off to the side. It really has the capacity to respond, right? And so, you know, and and again, many of the figures that we maybe we we often admire, like Dr. King, uh, Nelson Mandela, maybe others you can name, um, had the quality of equanimity in the midst of action. You know, in the midst of acting, they could be balanced. You know, it doesn't mean you lose it. Some you don't lose it sometime but they could actually have the quality of um, really of uh, acting fully. So equanimity doesn't mean that we stand aloof. It's a quality of balance, which is again, invaluable in the midst of, of acting, you know? So the two, you know, sort of the two dangers of developing equanimity is one that we would be uh, disconnected from the heart, which again is related to the deeply rooted Western tendency to disconnect, you know, the mind and the emotions. You know, often uh, very gendered. You know, men have the intellect, women have the emotions, right? And so, the one danger is that there is that disconnection, which again, there's a lot of conditioning around that equanimity that gets disconnected from the heart. The second danger is that equanimity gets disconnected from being responsive and active. And so that's what we want to look out for as we're, as we're cultivating um, equanimity. And watch out for, you know, equanimity taking the form of a kind of rational rationalization. Um, this is a poem from uh, Gary Snyder. 
There was um, Gary Snyder had made some comments. This was uh, after uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan had destroyed like a, whatever, a 1,500, 2,000-year-old Buddhist statue. And Snyder had written about it. And someone wrote to him more or less saying, why, why are you talking about this? Don't you have equanimity? Aren't all things impermanent? And Snyder wrote a kind of a prose poem in response. He's really pointing to the heart. And he's, he's actually going to quote another haiku by Isa, who wrote a haiku when his son died, when his young son died. And uh, the, uh, the, the haiku by Isa refers to some lines in the Diamond Sutra, which talks about the way that when we see impermanence clearly, everything is like a dewdrop at dawn. Maybe some of you know those passages. And that the haiku goes like this. This dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet. So here, here's what Gary Snyder said. Ah, yes, impermanence. But this is a never a reason to let compassion and focus slide or to pass off the sufferings of others because they are merely impermanent beings. The haiku goes, this dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet, so Snyder goes on, and yet is our perennial practice, and maybe the root of the Dharma. There's another beautiful passage which talks about this relationship of uh, equanimity to both uh, qualities of the heart and to being responsive and active from uh, Nyanaponika Tara, uh, who has a beautiful essay called The Four Sublime States, which is about loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. You can find it on the web. It's about 10 pages, really beautiful. And this is from it. He says, equanimity is the crown and culmination of the four sublime states. But this should not be understood to mean that equanimity is the negation of love, compassion, and sympathetic joy, or that it leaves them behind as inferior. Far from that, equanimity includes and pervades them fully, just as they fully pervade equanimity. Metta imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. Karuna, or compassion, guards equanimity from falling into cold indifference, and keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation. Compassion urges it to enter again and again the world in order to be able to stand the test. Joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its sometimes stern appearance, a smile that persists in spite of the knowledge of the world's suffering. Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for these other three. It is balance of mind rooted in insight. It is a manifestation of great strength. So... That's what to look out for. So again, maybe to summarize how to practice. 
we want to practice especially by seeing what knocks us off center. A lot of equanimity is developed by doing that. Of course, this presupposes pretty well-developed concentration, pretty well-developed mindfulness. But then we bring those to see when we go off-center, and in a way, we need to have studied closely all of the things which knock us off-center. And that's, that's why regular practice is so important. And retreats, again, can be important because sometimes, as in my experience, we can get caught or stuck in a way which lasts for a few days, but we are looking at it all the time. And that has a great value. That was, that's certainly been my experience. So we, we, through our regular practice, we look at what knocks us off center. We can have particular focus maybe on what's coming up, particular focus. Let me look this week at when I get angry. Let me look at when I get reactive in small ways just on the daily basis. That's going to develop equanimity. Let me notice my, let me identify my top five ways that I lose it and set my meditative radar for those states. I can work also with the eight worldly winds, the pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. See which of those is most intense. So we can we can do that. And then we can also, I think, as we're developing more equanimity, check that we're also developing a connection between equanimity and the awakened heart, that the heart qualities are coming in. Also, that we're bringing equanimity, as it were, off the cushion into our action. So we can also say when we have a particularly challenging interaction, meeting, relationship, let me find ways to develop equanimity in this setting. And so there's so many ways to to cultivate that that equanimity. And you know, and then we can also I think be inspired by by the beings that may have had a lot of equanimity and study their stories and we'll invariably find that they had ups and downs and that they lost it sometimes. So I think I can finish with that. And uh, thank you very much for your kind attention. And we can have some uh, sharing, if you want, of stories or stories from your own experience or people whom you know who inspire you about equanimity or questions about anything I said. And Fran, do we people typically, I think I can see almost everyone, although for me there are two screens. Uh, looks like we have, I don't know how many we have. Looks 26. Like have uh, 26. So it looks like just one person on the second screen. So I can see almost everyone. Uh, I think you could just, uh, if you want to speak, just raise your hand or uh, physically or... Um, Maybe uh, do the raised hand function under participants if you need to. But And Fran, could you check on the uh, other screen or go just to check? So sure. let's see. I see uh, Sarah. And is it, uh, let's see, it's uh, Beth. Okay. Why don't we go Sarah and then Beth? Yeah. Um, thank you. That was excellent.
Um, I happen to be in the morning listening to Gil, his Brahma Bihara oh, yeah. thing, and he has a Dharmat. Um, and I've kind of been trying to notice, you know, when I get thrown off, and today, the body. I mm. wanted to ask about the relationship between the body going crazy before you even realize you're off center. Yeah. And that happened when I couldn't figure out how to use my phone. I, I never wanted the phone, but um, now that I've got it, my other phone went out and I told the person I'd call him back and I couldn't figure it out. And I tried messaging and I tried everything and my body <laughs> just got so uh, shaken up. It was not pleasant. And, um, of course, then it came to my attention that I could calm down. But sometimes it's that's a good uh, clue to the fact that you're not a quantum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much. I think. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Uh, just a, a few thoughts there. Um, one is that one thing I didn't mention, which is important, is that we actually especially can learn equanimity by the ways that we're reactive or lose it that are mildly to moderately intense. You know, some of you know I like to use a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of a level of intensity. And we naturally want to go and deal with the 9s and 10s, but a lot of our learning is going to be with the 4s and 5s because the dynamics are exactly the same. And so it's valuable to make a point of looking for the small moments of reactivity, not just the big ones. And... Um, so that's really crucial. And part of that also, I think, is very valuable. When we study our reactivity, we can notice, oh, um, here's the way my body is. Here's the way my emotions are. Here are the patterns. So we can become more familiar. Now, when the level of uh, intensity is more like a 9 or a 10, which probably was what yours was like, then actually we can't, for most of us, uh, if it's really that level, we can't really actually be very mindful of it. And so the most skillful thing is to try to come back to some degree of balance. So with the really intense stuff, you know, we, we have to check, can I really be mindful? And being mindful means that uh, not just that I'm aware of what's happening, but that I can stay with it and my, I'm not just being continually knocked off center. And so that's skillful when I'm, when I'm, you know, that will cultivate equanimity by, by maybe by me knowing I have a way to come back to center with the difficult stuff. So we want to have like a, almost like a toolkit. Here are the ways I can come back to balance. One, two, three, four, five, you know, depending on what comes up. I meditate, do this meditation. I do meta meditation. I take a walk. I talk to a friend. I listen to music, I dance, whatever. Thank yeah. you, Donald. Thanks, Sarah. So, uh, Beth, please. I have kind of a silly one, I guess. Um, whenever I hear really loud 
engines, you know, motors of cars, like super, super loud revving, yeah. screeching their wheels and stuff. And I mean, I have such a strong, no, I do. I have like an intense reaction and I've been trying to kind of calm myself, but it's like, I just get furious. I get angry. I get upset. I get, I mean, I get livid and I have high blood pressure. So, you know, it's not good. So do you have any suggestions? Cause I've been trying to work on it, but it just blows up in me every time I hear that scream, that roaring, those roaring engines along first street. So this is when you're outside or when they're outside your house? Yeah. Or it's not really my house. It's in downtown Benicia on first street. There are certain cars that go by and just like rev their engines super loud, either motorcycles or just regular cars with their mufflers, you know, undone. And, and then they screech around the corner sometimes. And it just, it just sets me like crazy. Yeah. Um, thanks, Beth. How many can relate to something like that? Yeah. So presumably that's, you know, at least in the moment is like a nine or a 10. Yeah. So there are a few things you could do. Uh, a lot of working with reactivity is noticing the reactivity as soon as possible and not proliferating it. That's really key to working with intense reactivity. So, you know, it, it may happen, but can I, uh, first of all, notice that it's really intense, notice it's happening. That makes it possible for me then to say what's wise to do right now. And maybe what's wise to do is to uh, go in into the nearby store. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Or just to get away from it. But then uh, watch, watch your uh, tendency to keep it going in your mind, maybe with being judgmental of them. Why do they do that? Blah, blah, blah. Right. And so you so you want to actually study it because there is some part of it that you can actually work with and minimize the reactivity. You could also another way to work with that would be to maybe at the end of a meditation, deliberately bring up something like that experience. Of course, you won't actually hear the sounds, but bringing up, bring it up as a memory, as if you're reliving it, and just and study it, because we want to study the patterns of reactivity. So that's one way to do it. You can bring it up deliberately and study it, and just say, okay, here's what I do, and to what extent are you kind of fueling the reactivity by commentary? for example, right? And that's something that you can um, uh, reduce. And of course, if you get to the Benicia legislature, you could make laws. Yeah, it uh, looks like uh, Nancy. Thank you so much for this. I've always... Equanimity is really um, perplexes me. Um, and the more I hear about it, the more confused I become. But I think you shed some light on it that I've been thinking about, which is I don't want to be non-reactive. 
Okay. So it's like, um, but what you, your discussion that you were just having made me come up with this question. Is non-react, does non-reactive mean not acting on your emotions or not feeling them? Yeah. Thank you for the question. Cause it really helps bring out something that actually would have been helpful for me to mention right away when I talking about non-reactivity. Um, actually, does it mean not acting? No. Does it mean not feeling? No. What uh, non-reactivity, re, I use reactivity in the same way that the Buddha used the word dukkha. And it's about a kind of compulsive grabbing hold or pushing away. And the emphasis is on it being compulsive, habitual, and often relatively unconscious. You know, so it's the way that I very quickly am judgmental of someone. That's being reactive, right? Or the way that I, um, you know, maybe instantly have a reaction towards that uh, revving of the motors, right? And we, um, we could use other words. And so reactivity has the quality, uh, this is more like almost like a definition of being compulsive, uh, habitual, semi-conscious or unconscious. And it's often distinguished from being responsive. And so it's, it's a little confusing in the English language because we often use react and respond synonymously. So this is really giving a special meaning to the word react. So that, it's, it's like when you're triggered. Yeah, it's basically being triggered or activated uh, at a habitual level without consciousness, you know, without one really knowing what's, at least initially, what's going on. And, and whereas being responsive means that I can actually, and it, it means that the way one actually acts or does something typically follows very, very old habitual patterns. And there's basically not freedom. That's really why reactivity is a problem the way I'm defining it. When there's reactivity, I am not free. I am driven. You know, this I am driven by my past conditioning. When I can be mindful and be responsive, there's freedom. And so it's, it's reactivity in that sense. So it's, it's very helpful to have asked that question because we often use react to mean acting, responding in a skillful way, right? In English, we use it like that. But here I'm using it in a special way. Yeah, that, that is really, really helpful. And maybe after 27 more times of hearing talks on equanimity, I'll really, really get it. But that was really enlightening. Yeah, uh, so what, see, what we're looking for is uh, being able to be with even difficult stuff without going into old habitual unconscious patterns. That's another way of saying it. But it it does mean actually, and being having some freedom to respond freshly in the moment rather than just being driven by my conditioning that's been unworked out. So that's why focusing on it often throughout your day and or when you're meditating helps you kind of unravel that so that right. you don't react in that sort of unconscious way. Yeah, or, or a little bit like the um, 
response I gave to, to Beth. We want to study our patterns really, really carefully and continually until we get to know them really well. And that permits us to see them uh, sooner after they appear. That's a key. We don't get rid of the reactive patterns, but they can be short-lived. The Dalai Lama said, you know, I still sometimes get irritable, which is something that happened when he was younger. But it doesn't last so long. You know, he gets reactive, but he notices it and can uh, shift things. Because the, the neural pathways in the brain are still there. They're not going to, you don't get rid of neural pathways, but you can make them be much less uh, central. And Thank so, you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Okay, please, uh, Neil, please. I have one question of clarification and maybe a follow-up question. Um, I think we talked about this recently yesterday. Um, so in simplistic terms, would you consider equanimity a blend of the feeling tone work and the, um, I'm having a giant brain fart, the feeling tone work and the um, non-reactive work? Yeah, well, I think the, um, you know, the, the teachings where, you know, one of the core teachings, which, which you and I have discussed, where the Buddha basically makes the connection between looking at pleasant, unpleasant, or, or we'll say neutral, and reactivity is in the teaching on dependent origination. Very, very simple teaching. There is contact with something, some experience. We have pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. If we're not mindful, when there's the pleasant experience, we'll tend to want it and then grab hold of it. The grabbing is the reactivity. When there is the unpleasant experience and we're not mindful and aware of it, we will tend to not want it and tend to push it away. Again, the pushing away is the reactivity. That could be being judgmental, speaking harshly to someone, whatever. And so, uh, there, you know, when we can actually study pleasant and unpleasant carefully in our meditation, I didn't mention this tonight, um, but it can be one of the great areas. When we study exactly that sequence that I just named from contact to pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and if reactivity arises, either the grabbing hold or the pushing away, when we can actually study that over and over again, it's one of the main ways to work with uh, reactivity. And the follow-up question is, how does the, I can understand how that could lead to the, I believe the fourth pillar, which is understanding patterns. How does the heart come in? How does the heart come in with uh, with the wisdom factor? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's really looking towards am am I integrating my wisdom and my awakened heart? You know. So Jack Kornfield has a book called The Wise Heart. Now we may train ourselves and develop those separately. 
but we want to be able to integrate them. So we may develop uh, the wisdom maybe by reflection, or we see the pattern, or we think about it, or we reflect, or we notice it with mindfulness. But we want to also sometimes ask, what's going on in my heart right now? And we might separately be developing metta. We can also develop equanimity as an explicit heart practice. You know, that one of the Brahma Vihara, you know, also through the repetition of phrases, like the one that I often use is, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. You know, and I may say that to myself and I think about something that isn't the way I want it. And I, and I kind of go, <clears throat> sort of I touch certain pain and there's some emotion there. So ultimately we want the um, wisdom factor and the awakened heart to be uh, connected. And especially if our conditioning tends to separate them, then we may want to both develop uh, both of them separately and then bring them together. And when we're, you know, when we're seeing patterns, we might ask ourselves, okay, what's there in my heart right now as I'm, as I'm exploring? Yeah. Does that get at it, Neil? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think, uh, Fran, and probably do we have time just for your question? And should we be finishing up soon? Sure. Um. So as you were answering the last question, it occurred to me that um, states of meditation, especially where uh, there is no craving, there is no aversion, there's a, a deep relaxation, neutrality, um, that uh, kind of remembering that state as a, I don't know, a, a ground, uh, you know, a true state of some kind a natural state, uh-huh. um, remembering that in day-to-day life can offer, I don't know, a, a kind of freedom from reactivity, um, re- referring back to those uh, meditation experiences. Does that make any sense? And can you say anything about that? Yeah, it can be, um, you may, if I, tell me if I'm understanding you correctly, but... Um, it's really a question of how can, let's say, our some of our deeper experiences and reflecting on them or remembering them play a role in our practice. And they, you know, if I'm uh, if I if I have had experiences where I felt equanimity and balance and that mix of wisdom and the awakened heart. And I've had that experience. I don't experience it all the time. And then during the day, something knocks me around. I might reflect, oh, I remember. It's not, you know, and I'm, maybe I'm uh, thinking about something for 10 minutes that's really bothering me. I can remember some of those states and say, okay, Donald, um, uh, you're repeating yourself. Uh, how about... Uh, how about doing some practice, <laughs> right? And uh, so those kind of uh, reflections can um, can invite one to practice. I think I would frame it more like that than think that the, uh, I mean, maybe sometimes just the remembering of the experience might be enough for, to, uh, 
to let go of something. Maybe that's what you're referring to. Sometimes that, but it would depend on the level of intensity. Sometimes just reflecting, you know, say, you know, what am I doing? I don't need to do this. And that might be enough. Sometimes it might be more intense. And then it would say, oh, I remember that. Let's, what's a wise way to practice right now? Okay, let's do a little bit of, uh, um, you know, let's come back into my body, let's say. You know, and and feel what's there, or whatever. Does that get at it, Fran? Uh, yes, thank you. Okay. Hey, were anyone else wanted to speak before we close up? I think Fran, should we should we take the top of the hour as a yeah as a boundary? Yes. Okay. Um, any burning issues? Minute or so. Thank you, Donald. You're welcome. I yeah. I love Thank equanimity. Again, I, I dedicate this to my my papa. <laughs> Thank you for sharing about your your papa. It was so dear and sweet. Yes. And thank you for as always for your deep preparation. You yeah. really care, and it's such a compliment to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, you're very welcome. As a I actually, I miss you. I used to work with Don. Yeah, we had a work. we had a group which was I think monthly, right? Yeah, and it was went on for years. Well, I think and one I we had still, was it, it was every two weeks. It wasn't monthly. Yeah. No, we had your private group and then the judgment group. I yeah. still make judgments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Darn. Yeah, and, uh, Elizabeth was part of that, and uh, yeah. I yeah. asked too. Thanks, Donald. You offered a long list of very practical and uh, useful applications. Yeah. Uh, sort of yeah. how, how to do it, a lot to think about. Yeah, what I, I, I'm not able to do it this time. I often like to uh, teach on the same theme for uh, two weeks in a row or two sessions in a row if there's every, if it's every two weeks and, and sort of invite people to focus on that theme for the period between mm-hmm. the meetings. So I'll invite you if you wish to, uh, if you wish to uh, say, okay, I'm going to attend to uh, look at equanimity for the next week or the next two weeks. Yeah, just uh, how many actually are interested in that? So, yeah, so that that can be something that's helpful if this has some energy. And then, Fran, do you put the recording up on the, website pretty soon? Yeah, I'm uh, birthing the new uh, website. Um, Actually, we could do it on the current one, but have been kind of waiting. Uh, But one way or another, we'll have an archive of Dharma Talks. Okay, great. Okay, so... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. So I'll finish with the uh, two things. One is the dedication of merit, traditional. May the benefits of our time together be there for us, be there for people in our lives, and then beyond those circles, be there for all beings, which comes back and includes us. And then uh, secondly, I like to finish by just a little bit of saying goodbye, just like this. It's my little something only developed in Zoom. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Till next time.
Thank you, Donald. Thank you, Donald. Okay, I'll be the same. Thank you. Be well. Be well. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye.